You're listening to the Deep in the Tank podcast with Chris Kidwell and Sam Glover. Sam, we're back. Yeah, it's been a while. How are you? I'm all right. How are you? I'm making it. My feet hurt, but I mean, that's just life sometimes. Yeah, well, you know, maybe we're getting old or something. (laughs) I'm, I'm the ripe old age of 29 going on 30 next year, and so... Um, 27 going on 70 it feels like you know we'll uh see what happens i suppose but no we're we're back um there's been there's been an election since we last had this uh podcast we kind of went away on an informal hiatus i guess uh for you know just i guess a few different reasons we just needed to try and work some things out schedule wise and finally back to being able to do this. And now we think we know who's going to be the next president, uh, about five days after the election took place, uh, toward the beginning of November, it was announced that Joe Biden was expected to be the winner of this year's presidential election and thus become the next president of the United States on January 20th, uh, 2021. Sam, what are your initial thoughts to hearing that news? What were your initial thoughts uh, in processing that news? I was somewhat surprised uh, because we we did talk about this briefly a, f- a few weeks back before the election. I, uh, I thought that uh, Trump was going to win not by a whole lot and that it was ultimately his election to lose. So I was somewhat surprised. Um, I wasn't just like riding in the street as a result. Uh, lots of people were like not literally riding in the streets, but I, I know a lot of people that weren't thrilled with the results. So I was somewhat surprised uh, and not in the sense of, oh, well, they must have cheated or anything like that. There are ongoing discussions about election fraud, manipulation, that sort of thing, which I do think are good and healthy because if nothing else, it's very much one of those, the truth has nothing to fear from investigation sort of thing. So I say, let the investigations happen. And if it turns out great, nothing was wrong. Very cool. Let's certify the result and get on with it. As far as kind of my initial impression, um, I see a lot of people like, well, finally we can get back to normal. We can get back to, you know, the way things were, that sort of thing. And I have my very uh, blunt uh, statements on that, but uh, I'll just, I'll put it this way. Biden winning this election and the responses to it have reminded me that the peak of American privilege is being able to care more about what European countries think of us than what happens to people in the Middle East. And also, just as a matter of course, looking at the projected Biden picks, um, Democrats who thought they were going to get like left-leaning, like hard left-leaning things, were sold a bill of goods, and that makes me laugh because anytime the hard left loses, I win. So that uh, that fills me with joy. Yeah, and, and just a little bit later on, we're going to circle back around to what a Biden presidency might look like, uh, in particular, what it might mean to live under a Biden presidency. Of course, we don't know that yet. Uh, we won't know that for probably at least another month and a half here. But, um, you know, just looking at the vote count, the thing that 
really struck me is, first of all, this, I mean, the massive just number of votes, period. Um, Joe Biden uh, received the most votes numerically of any presidential candidate in American history with 81 million plus uh, at you know time of recording. And Donald Trump received, I think, the second most votes of any presidential candidate in American history with 74 million. Um, and I think what that speaks to is people thought this election was important. Uh, people still think the election was important. Absolutely. You know, that it, that, and, and I'm not going to sit here and say that it's totally irrelevant, but it's uh, th- that was staggering to me. Um, I expected there to be probably a little bit lower turnout than what we had in 2016, in part, in no small part, because of the pandemic. But uh, a combination of most states making it a little bit easier for people to vote by mail or otherwise vote remotely, uh, alongside apparently just a, a passion for either voting for Trump or voting, let, let's call it what it is, against Trump, uh, led, you know, what, over 150 million people to cast their votes for one of those two men? Like, that's that's nearly half the country uh, voting for those two men? Uh, and that, that means, that would mean well over 50% of registered voters cast their votes for one of those two men, if, if my math is right. Um, that's seriously impressive by itself. And, and you know, it, it's assuming the numbers are uh, certain, uh, assuming they are real. And, you know, there, there's probably some election fraud going on. We'll, we'll talk, we'll speak to that in just a minute. I'm not convinced that it's, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of votes of fraud. Uh, there's fraud in every election, but not to a degree that swings, you know, national general elections. Um, you know, it, but assuming those numbers are real, that's that's quite the turnout. And then the other thing that strikes me is Biden being able to flip a couple of uh, states that Trump won, uh, most notably at time of recording, Georgia, which is being hotly contested uh, by Trump right now. And there's some conversations between him and the governor to go back and investigate things even more. That's, I believe, the governor of Georgia's Brian Kemp. Uh, but as of right now, uh, according to the Associated Press, uh, with 100% of precincts reporting, Joe Biden won the state of Georgia uh, with 49.5% of the vote and 2,473,000 votes in total. That's 0.2% more than what Trump got. Uh, but that that's probably the most staggering thing to me. I, I did not expect that to happen. Um, I, like I said way back when, I expected Biden to win. Um, I expected there to be some pretty serious backlash against Trump for a number of different reasons. <clears throat> but I didn't, I by no means expected him to win Georgia. And to be clear, Biden wins the election even without winning Georgia, uh, assuming the rest of the map stays the same. But that's that's the thing that struck me is that he is that Biden really overperformed uh, in a lot of states that Trump won in the previous election, either by taking them outright or by making them a lot closer. The exception, of course, here being Oklahoma, uh, which is the only state with more than one county in the country that had every single county vote for Trump. Every single county. Every single county in Oklahoma went for Trump, which is a little surprising because 
Tulsa tends to be a little bit left leaning and Oklahoma city can be a little left leaning at times, although that's not as much of a surprise. Uh, Tulsa, uh, and I forget the name of the County Tulsa's in, but you know, the Tulsa area going for Trump was very surprising. Trump won 65% of the vote in Oklahoma, which is just a massive number. That's, that's a larger share of the vote than what Biden won in maybe every state except for Vermont, uh, Vermont and Massachusetts. Uh, Trump got a higher percentage of the share in Oklahoma than Biden did in California. Like that's, that's kind of crazy to me. Um, so it's, you know, it's something though, where Biden, he, he did what I thought he was going to do. He appealed to blue collar workers specifically in the Midwest, uh, in a way that Hillary Clinton didn't in a, in a way, frankly, she couldn't. Um, and because of that, he won the election, right? I mean, he, he won, uh, Michigan, he won Wisconsin, he won Minnesota, he won Pennsylvania, he won all these states that, you know, Trump was a lot more competitive in, uh, in 2016 than he was here. Um, winning some not, I don't know that he, I forget if he won Minnesota or not in 2016, but winning those others in 2016. Um, and it, you know, they, Democrats ran a ran a Democrat who is perceived as being more moderate. And indeed, as you hinted at earlier, some of his cabinet picks look like they're going to be more moderate than some of the party would want them to be, but it is what it is. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what this looks like. Um, any more thoughts on that before we sort of discuss this issue of election fraud? Uh, really anything I would say would just be kind of footnoting and, uh, uh, consenting i suppose uh but uh i do find it surprising that the margin in oklahoma was that wide especially when you take when you put it alongside something like biden didn't even do that well in california that that to me is surprising that's interesting doing well in major cities doesn't overwhelmingly shock me because democrats typically overperform in urban areas and there are a variety of reasons for that, but um, I mean, really, what it boils down to, I do think you're, I do think there's something to be said for why you think he won. Uh, frankly, whatever critiques I may have about Biden, and I have plenty of them to be certain, he does come off to people as normal, more or less. Uh, even people that don't personally dislike him, he does not inspire the same animus in people as, say, Hillary Clinton does. Because Hillary, again, for any good thing that could be said about her, she really had this ability to just draw venom out of people. And Biden, he's the like the most that people really say about him is he's been in power for 50 years what do you think he's actually going to change and also he's a decrepit old man it's not just vile like he is satan on the throne cackling madly sort of stuff it's he's a decrepit incompetent old man that's been in power for several decades what do you actually think he's going to do differently Whereas with Clinton, it's she's functionally Satan incarnate. 
and Trump, there are things that can be said for him, but he did win in part because it was what many people view as Satan incarnate or this guy that is unsavory. And so without that, I don't think I estimated properly just the effect voting against a cup of yogurt would have on how Trump does. Yeah. And that's, that's something he, Hillary Clinton, and I've said this several times before, Hillary Clinton is the worst uh, major party, major party candidate in the history of American politics. Uh, I have no doubt in my mind that that's true. Um, Whereas Joe Biden, as you said, he's not, he, he just doesn't get the same reaction. And so what this is really is it's sort of a referendum on Trump um, that he lost this election. This is not, this election was not about, oh, we're going to put forth these progressive democratic ideas. If it was, Republicans would have lost the Senate, which they can still do depending on what happens in Georgia next month. Um, but if Republicans uh, if it was a Repu- if it was a referendum on Republican principles, ideas, and votes, uh, they would have lost the Senate, and they would not have gained uh, seats in the House. Uh, to the point where, during the midterm elections, uh, the the Democrats are going to run the risk of losing the House. And in fact, I'd be willing to predict this far out that they will lose the House at the midterm elections, uh, barring some sort of well, barring multiple scandals within the Republican Party. Um. It's just how midterm elections typically go in the first term of a presidency. Right. Uh, anyway, it, 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 it's a referendum on Trump, but it's also sort of implicitly a referendum on Hillary Clinton because, you know, there are, like, like we said, more people voted for Trump uh, than anyone else in American history other than Joe Biden this, this particular election. Uh, generally speaking, the people who voted for Trump stayed with Trump outside of certain areas in the Midwest. Um, what uh, what we've realized is that, like like we've said, Hillary Clinton just just was an awful awful candidate uh, to the point where, like you so eloquently put it, a cup of yogurt um, ended up winning the presidency because. You know, he's not that unlikable. He comes across to a lot of people as being more relatable. Putting aside the fact that he's been in politics for 50 years, uh, the reality is none of these people who run for, you know, federal office in the general elections are going to actually be relatable, right? None of these people. Okay, Trump's not been a politician. No, but he's got more money uh, than everyone in most people's families combined are ever going to have, Um, you know. And so neither of these two candidates are particularly relatable when you actually dig down deep. But Joe Biden, I, I mean, his personality is what shown through to people is that this is someone uh, that pe- more people are willing to work with. And you even had some uh, people, at least anecdotally, who are Republicans or would otherwise vote Republican, vote for Biden because they would rather vote for someone that they can reasonably work against, but they kind of know what they're getting versus working uh, with someone who they perceive to be somewhat unstable, uh, emotional, and erratic. And even beyond that, uh, in 
memoirs that Obama has written and people in the Obama White House wrote, there's times where they just come out and say there were times where Obama wasn't the one that picked up the phone to talk to those Republicans. Obama would say, Joe, you go handle that because they'll work with you more so than they'll work with me. And so there's, again, like, I I would say, you say it's Biden's personality. I say it's more his lack of a personality, truthfully. Sure. But that's that's more just me being snarky and mean because I don't particularly care for him. But there is that element of, okay, you know, like, he's reached across the aisle. He worked on the crime bill in the 90s that he, I my memory serves, he's now recanted. Uh-huh. He's, he voted to confirm. Uh, Republican appointees when he was in the Senate. He voted in favor of the war in Iraq, uh, that sort of thing. I'm pretty sure he also, if it came up while he was in the Senate, he voted in favor of the Patriot Act, that sort of thing. That that sort of reaching across the aisle, even if it's for things that I find to be detestable, I am not the average American voter. So other people will see that and they'll see like, reaching across the aisle, cooperating, not being very blunt and confrontational, that sort of thing, as, oh, okay, you know, like, this is someone who who I can count on to be, quote-unquote, reasonable. Well, and, you know, you mentioned reaching across the aisle. He's got working relationships with the vast majority of people in uh, in Congress at this point. Um, he's apparently got a somewhat decent relationship with Mitch McConnell, which is going to come in handy for him, especially, and, and I fully expect Republicans to retain control of the Senate. Uh, this always happens in Georgia that you get runoff elections, or it feels like it always happens anyway. You get runoff elections for representative seats and especially for Senate seats. Uh, and then when the runoff elections happen, the vote turnout tends to be a little bit lower, which works in Republicans' favor, um, generally down in uh, what are typically red states? Uh, of course, Georgia lit up blue this year in the in the presidential election. But I fully expect them to retain both Senate se- seats, retain majority. It's worth noting they only have to actually retain uh, one of those seats uh, in order to uh, in order to retain control of the Senate, even with uh, Vice President uh, Kamala Harris uh, becoming the president of the Senate. And so we'll uh, we'll see what happens with that. But, you know, I, I get the impression that this is that Biden is someone who putting policy aside, because I don't think there's a lot to like about his positions on policy. This is someone who will be seen as someone you can work with, uh, whereas with with Trump, I get the impression that, you know, Republicans were really sort of just trying to follow his lead more than anything else because he 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 was not going to be told no. Uh, if he was if you were hired by him and you told him no, you typically lost your job. Uh, and Republicans didn't want to lose his support, even though his support mattering in elections uh, was uh, tenuous at best. Uh, it wasn't something that really mattered all that much, actually. Um, what I hope happens is that after a Trump presidency and after eight years of Barack Obama, we return uh, to a time where it seems like Congress can actually function with its president. Um, During the first two years of the Barack Obama presidency, if memory serves, uh, uh, 
Obama controlled the House, the Senate, and of course the presidency, the, the Democrats did. Uh, and they pushed through a ton in those first two years, most notably and most immediately that stimulus bill uh, that came through. Um, and then the Tea Party wave took over in the midterm elections, and all of the sudden, uh, it you know you had gridlock basically, right? And so, you know, at, at one of the biggest complaints about the Obama presidency is that not a whole lot actually got done after the first two years because nobody wanted to work with anyone. Um, and what I, I I'm not terrifically optimistic about this, but there is an opportunity here. Uh, for government to work like it should, uh, like it ideally should, rather than, uh, you know, different people just telling people no all the time, which to be clear, I don't necessarily mind the government not getting things done if not getting things done means not plunging us deeper into debt. I do mind, however, when there are crises that the government should be responding to that they don't because of petty politics, which has been true uh, definitely the past four years and in, in reality, probably the past 10 or so. This is an area where you and I disagree and uh, to be expected, I love gridlock. The What I want most is for it to just be dead heat 50-50, split directly along party lines, and nothing gets done because the less that they do, the less they can infringe. And the less and the more that Democrats and Republicans are concerned about just being at each other's throats about the outrage du jour of the day, the more that individuals begin to realize two key things. One, we can attend to our own problems if the government will get out of our way. And two, if one is true, then we don't need these jokers. And so if they want to sit in Washington squibbling and squabbling with each other, that's fine. We can go about and live our own lives and carve our own paths without them. And to me, that's great. I, I can sympathize with the concerns over crisis and the need for decisive action and the need to, like, for gridlock to not be a problem there. But at the same time, realistically, the, the state's response is always spend more money and resort to more, more coercion. Excuse me, more coercion. And so, if they're not able to do that, that's a win in my book. Yeah, I, I, I would I understand where you're coming from. Yeah, and part of the reason I would disagree with you there is purely because uh, if things don't get done in Congress, if things don't get done the way the founders envisioned they would get done, if you will, uh, what has ended up happening in this, this has been happening you know, throughout, uh, the past, you know, probably six decades or so. Uh, but especially it ramped up during the Obama presidency and, uh, the Trump presidency featured plenty of this as well. Uh, things done by executive order. Um, I, the, what happens more recently in gridlock is if the gridlock is over something that the president wants to get done, if it's something he can do by executive order, he has done it by executive order. Um, you remember we discussed a while back, uh, like Trump had one random Saturday where he came out with five different executive orders, including the moratorium on student loan payments, which, by the way, just got extended until the end of January. Uh, and so you have these uh, you have these executive orders. And to be clear, I don't necessarily 
Uh, I'm not necessarily upset at every executive order that comes down. I'm just upset that that's how it had to get done. Um, you know, it's something where things happen. And of course, the executive orders uh, during certain presidencies, especially Obama's come to mind, uh, involving drone strikes. Those, uh, man, that's that that's where the danger is, is uh, when you've got a president who looks at the process looks at how things are supposed to work, says it's not working, I have to do something, and does something uh, not only that's you know way out of bounds uh, when contrasted against what the Constitution would have them to do, but beyond that uh, is something that we don't really want him doing anyway, uh, and something that's frankly terrible uh, that he's doing. That That's very, very problematic. And so that, that's sort of where my uh, trepidation concerning gridlock is. I don't think we're going to have that as much. Uh, I think there will be a few sticking points where that happens. Um, and I am very okay with those sticking points. I, uh, Assuming the Senate retains control or Republicans retain control of the Senate, uh, it will be virtually impossible uh, for a Biden-Harris uh, administration to pack the courts as they have dodged those questions time and time again. Um, and I am perfectly fine. Uh, with that just not happening, but um, you know, we'll we'll see what gets done. I, I I think there will be some things that get done, and that that sort of uh, before we get to that, I, I did want to talk to you real quick about the fact that Donald Trump, um, the current president, has not conceded the election as of time as of our recording, uh, just a little after three in the afternoon on Monday, December seventh. Uh, it's been. Almost a full month since Biden was declared the winner. Uh, virtually none of the lawsuits that the Trump administration administration has made in different states concerning different election outcomes uh, have amounted to anything at all. Um, and in reality, the only thing that the only real intrigue at this point is what's going to happen in Georgia, which, as we've already said, doesn't actually matter for the outcome of the election. Uh, and yet we're still investigating this, this fraud. I, I think we're probably in pretty similar places on this, uh, where it, it's, it's good to investigate the fraud. Uh, but I'm also pretty skeptical that there's going to be anything close to enough, uh, evidence to turn over any of these states outcomes. Right. And I, I, we are in many respects on the same page, uh, there are people who I think are being a little over concerned about the uh, about Trump's refusal to concede, for instance, uh, because realistically, they're acting as if Trump just saying "No, I didn't lose" is what's going to keep him in office. Like he's going to lock the door to the Oval Office, and people are just going to stand around and say, "Well, the door is locked." He said no he didn't what can we do as if as if the white house is just this impregnable mega fortress that they can't do anything about or as if they can't say okay well fine if he wants to just sit in the oval office we can we have other places that the president can operate from and he has to come out to use the bathroom eventually and when he's doing that we can just shovel biden in and lock the door so that, I think, is a little overdone. I'm not saying that is what you're doing or that that's even a very common thing. It's just when I see it, I kind of roll my eyes and say, okay, what is he actually going to do? But uh, it's, 
I'm going to interrupt you here real quick. It's worth noting that he can lock himself in the Oval Office until noon on January 20th when uh, Biden is sworn in. And when that does happen, uh, he will be asked to leave, escorted uh, nicely out of the building. And if he refuses at that point, he can be placed under arrest. Um, right. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Then, That's the thing. Like, people you know, are can, forgetting he, that he's not just... He's not actually the God Emperor, despite what some people refer to him as. Yeah, he can he can refuse to leave all he wants until January twentieth, and he can he can refuse to concede a single thing until that point. And he is well within his rights to do that. There's nothing, uh, and many people have come out and noted this. There's nothing in the Constitution uh, that indicates that you know a presidential candidate who has lost has to concede. Uh, but you know if he stays there. After Biden has been sworn in, it doesn't matter what's happened beforehand. At that point, he's trespassing. Um, you know, it, it's something I, I, I'm going to go off on a brief tangent here because there, something happened uh, shortly after the, the election or maybe it was shortly before that really irritated me. It was Van Jones. And I think in what was actually a TED talk somehow uh, came out and basically it put out a vi video of, hey, what happens if the president uh, doesn't concede? What? You know, if he loses, and I think it was just a hair before, you know, what, what do we expect? And it was the most fear mongering thing uh, that I think I've ever seen. It was as if democracy would fall apart. The country would fall apart. And we would devolve into civil war over Donald Trump refusing to leave office. When in reality, he can refuse to leave office all he wants legally until it's not his office anymore. And at that point, the military uh, constitutionally is going to you know, uh, unless all of a sudden they go back to their, you know, they go back on their oaths, which is defending the Constitution, not the president. Uh, if they decide to revert their oaths, we, we have a whole different issue. But assuming they don't do that, assuming they actually abide by their word, then there's nothing to worry about with regard to this at all. Not a thing. Um, and so... We'll, we'll see what ends up happening there. But to your point about fraud, I'll let you continue. I just, I needed to get that out of my system pretty fierce. Oh yeah, no. And I, I, I certainly understand it because I find fear mongering to be quite tiresome myself. But uh, as to the uh, election fraud claims, uh, you said like, you know, there's fraud in every election more than likely. And of course, like the, everyone knows that I'll say, well, of course every election is a fraud because the notion of democracy or a republic is a fraud to begin with. But that's beside the point. Uh, and just read Democracy, the God that failed. That's the end of that segment for me. But um, as to the actual like, claims and suits regarding election fraud, uh, there's, um, I just blanked on the attorney's name. Good grief. She was in the news for several days and like, oh, I'm part of Trump's legal team. And then they put out a memo saying, no, she's not a part of the official Trump legal team. And talking about releasing the Kraken and this like huge pile of evidence of wide-scale voter fraud. Is that Sidney Powell? Yes, precisely. Thank you. And so there was all of that to do. And that kind of fizzled out. But then you have people like Giuliani and others just kind of quietly plugging away and saying, okay, like there are irregularities. Uh, there are a few counties, they're rare, and, but there, there are instances, for instance, of more votes being turned in than there are actually registered voters in that, in that county. 
Is it enough to swing an election? Probably not. Is it malfeasance? Also, not necessarily. But when you look at it and say, okay, there's an irregularity, we should figure out why this irregularity happened. Was it because there was just a mistake made? Was it because a ballot machine wasn't working properly? Was it because someone wrongly filled out a ballot? Or even something as simple as, for some reason, someone got two, sent two ballots filled one out and didn't think about it and filled the other one out. Just little things, all of which can have non-malicious explanations, but that when you look at it, you say, that is an irregularity that should be investigated. As a matter of something's wrong here, something's not right, we should figure that out. And, and I do think those genuine, like, let's try to figure these irregularities out investigations should proceed, even if they end up putting things off. Because you have to bear in mind, the people like, there's this idea that like oh this is unprecedented territory no it's not it was mid-december before the court cases around the bush gore election were finished if my memory serves so it was, it was like three or four weeks or something like that after uh you're right it, it's it's something where this this is unprecedented like you said uh and or it isn't unprecedented, like you said. Uh, and there was more of a case in 2000 than there is now, I think. Yeah. Um, and so like, it's you know, not I, the end of the world. Like, it's okay. Like, you know, the, the issue here, I think primarily is, um, frankly, the, you know, there's a break in protocol, uh, not official protocol, mind you, but there's, there's a break in, probably tradition is, is the better way of putting it to where when it is evident that a presidential candidate is going to lose, they normally are pretty quick to concede. Um, sometimes it's on the spot. Sometimes it takes a day or two like it did with Hillary Clinton four years ago. Um, and sometimes you do need to hash things out. I think the problem that most people, myself included, frankly, uh, with the uh, allegations of fraud here are is that even if these allegations of fraud are are true, at least to some extent, it's not going to be enough to turn the election. Um, it might, the, the, uh, you know, the margin of victory for Biden in Georgia is small enough. It's within 20,000 votes. I think it's small enough to where, uh, you know, if, if there is that wide scale fraud and we're talking about some of the most massive fraud in a presidential election in American history, uh, maybe just objectively the most ever, um, it might, and I mean might just barely flip a state that doesn't matter. Um, and so it's something, you know, worth, it, like, I, I agree with you, it is worth investigating. Um, but if the expectation, you know, it, it uh, I'm fumbling a little bit here, but if the expectation is that Trump should concede uh, when it is evident he's going to lose, he should have already conceded. The reality is he's just not going to do that. Um, Trump could have lost every single state in the union, and I'm not convinced he would concede anyway. Uh, it's just that's just so far outside of his personality to admit that he lost uh, that I I just don't think it's going to happen. Um, you know, it it, it kind of gets into something I was going to bring up. There are rumors floating around, and they are purely rumors. Um, but there are rumblings that uh, Trump may announce his candidacy for 2024 on Inauguration Day. 
Which, I've seen those, and please, I need that just directly into my femoral artery. Yeah, I, uh, I, I think the spectacle of it would be, oh man, we, you, you want to talk about a day that I might actually watch uh, cable news? Uh, it might be January twentieth, twenty twenty, in part because I do in, enjoy watching inaugurations. So it's it's a big deal, um, you know, and they they certainly make a big spectacle of it. Uh, but you know, you give me that on top of an inauguration and and to be clear, I don't want that to amount to anything. Like I, I, uh, you know, I, I, sometimes we're a little coy about the positions we hold as far as political candidates. I do not want Donald Trump, uh, to be the Republican candidate for president in 2024. I can go ahead and say that objectively right now. Um, there are probably 40 or 50 other people uh, I would rather have that I can name off the top of my head who are in the Republican Party that I would rather have as candidate for president. But um, give me the spectacle of that uh, for a day. Let me have that for a day, please. Uh, and, and just just see where it goes from there. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not really worried about these allegations of election fraud. I think there will be some fraud that's turned up. I don't think it's going to amount to much of anything, though, uh, in the large scale of things. Uh, what it hopefully will do is, you know, help some of these areas, some of these counties, assuming it's not malfeasance, uh, you know, sort of tighten up their, uh, you know, their vote counting system, if you will, or however you want to handle that. Um, so I want to ask you a question. Go for it. What? And we're, we're taking a hard left turn here. We both believe that at noon, on January 20th, 2020, uh, Joe Biden is going to be sworn in as the next president of the United States. Is that is that fair to say at this point? Are we, we in agreement there? Yes. Barring okay. just a bombshell, yes, that is what will happen. I, I think it would probably take something incapacitating him um, to for that to happen, frankly, and I don't think either of us wish that on him. By the way, uh, I was going to mention this earlier, but I didn't want to interrupt. Uh, Rudy Giuliani is currently in the hospital with coronavirus. We certainly want to remember him in our in our prayers. Certainly, um, absolutely. You know, uh, whatever your thoughts of him, nobody nobody wants someone to get you know ill with this virus. Certainly, to the point of going to the hospital, he's not in good shape by all accounts. Um, it, it's really two questions. Um, one a little bit more political, and one a little bit more spiritual. Um. And I'll let you have rain on these as you see fit. First, what do you believe, at least early on, a Biden-Harris administration will try and get done and actually get done? And secondly, uh, what do you, uh, how should a Christian uh, react and or resolve to live under a Biden-Harris presidency? Well, a few things come to mind for the first question and for the second question. But to answer the first question first, number one with a bullet will be a sort of return to typical Democrat uh, postures on a variety of subjects. I do think we'll see a return to quote-unquote business as usual in the Middle East, which to me is catastrophic. It is disastrous. It is 
uh, a return to the sorts of things that I believe merit the death penalty for a huge number of people in the federal government. And so, and we won't learn anything from any of that. Uh, and that goes into a wide variety of things that are best are better summarized by people who are more educated in foreign policy and geopolitics than I am, the likes of which I could name, for instance, Scott Horton. Uh, just reading his book, A Fool's Errand, would, I think, be beneficial for a huge number of people. So there's that, and that is what bothers me the most, is that we're going to very likely re-escalate military action and presence in the Middle East, which is the arguably single greatest policy mistake that elected officials insist on continuing to make and have insisted on making over the last 40 plus years. It's uh, worth noting. It's worth noting too, uh, from where I stand, that might be the single greatest achievement that Trump had while he was in office is he absolutely. by and large kept us out of conflict uh, for the first time in any presidential term going back to, is it Calvin Coolidge? Arguably, yes. He didn't start any new wars, which is a mind-boggling thing for a 21st century president to be able to say, mm -hmm. uh, especially when in 2000 to 2008, Democrats were strongly anti-war. They were strongly, you know, we don't need to be doing this. This is awful. Obama comes around and suddenly it's fine. And you have, uh, when Trump announces his intentions to pull troops out, you have Democratic senators saying, well, no, we can't do this because, you know, this will get people killed, that sort of thing. And I'm thinking, like, yeah, of course it will, because that's what happens when you insist on having a war. People die and people have already died. And we need to end this because otherwise people are going to continue dying. But anyway, that's beside the point. So the snarky, the snark in me wants to say, you know, a Biden-Harris uh, uh, presidency is going to be, oh, great, we're going to build some more hospitals in the Middle East, which is a good thing. And then we're going to blow them up with drones because we refuse to use our brains to think in the United States when it comes to foreign policy and action. But uh, beyond that, there's honestly, there's going to be a lot of just smoke and heat about uh, various, quote unquote, progressive steps. Because Biden really is like many uh, Democrats of the day. He has his kind of baseline left of center sympathies and positions. And then a lot of what he will go on to say is largely just, oh, well, this is just what progressives want me to say. Like just, uh, for example, a uh, during one of his rallies when he was still primary. Uh, there was someone in one of the crowd saying, you know, hey, we need to open the borders. And he just straight up told them, I'm not for open borders. Go vote for Trump and just turned his back on the person. And so more progressive members of the Senate and of the House are going to be disappointed in that sort of thing, because they're not going to have a president who is at least in heart and mind behind those policies. And that will matter even if his mouth is saying what they want to hear, because it's just going to be rhetoric. Now, there is suspicion that if, again, God forbid it, I don't wish ill on him uh, beyond I wish he would be held to account for his part in the war crimes we have committed against various peoples in the Middle East for decades now. 
But that's not wishing ill on the man. That's wishing justice on the man. So, again, if God forbid something happens to him and Kamala steps in, there is suspicion that she will be much harder left. Um, Either way, I do think there's going to be a bit more of an authoritarian bent to the way things are done in the White House. Trump was, there was a lot of bluster about, you know, I have authority, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And then it was mostly just delegated. Whereas Kamala, especially if she has any say in the matter, she is very much a, no, if I have the authority, I'm going to do something with it. And that I dislike, uh, just because I dislike authoritarians, and I think authoritarians need to be metaphorically kneecapped. It it takes a bit for me to move to they need to be physically kneecapped, but that's a different story. Now, no, I'm sorry, go ahead. Do you want to say something? Yeah, I, I was going to say, I, I want to kind of answer my own question here. Um, I think uh, in addition to that, we're going to, we're going to see, uh, we're going to see them throw uh, the, the left it within the democratic party, a little bit of a bone, especially early on, because what they don't want is uh, for a revolt to take place as soon as the midterm elections, uh, let alone, in 2024. Um, and I think they're also going to do things that try and uh, simultaneously appeal to, frankly, our generation. Uh, what I'm getting at here is I'll be stunned if within the first couple of years we don't see a major stimulus bill uh, with regard to, uh, you know, that I mean, people are still feeling the economic fall- fallout of the coronavirus. And until the until there is a vaccine widely available, they're still going to feel that fallout. Whether or not the government is supposed to step in in those cases is largely going to be irrelevant. It's going to. It's just a matter of how much. Um, and so I imagine probably day one uh, in uh, in office, there will be a stimulus bill. I really think it's going to happen that quickly. I, I'll be stunned if Biden's not already talking uh, to uh, current representatives and current senators and, you know, senator-elects and representative-elects. Uh, about getting that deal done. Um, that way he's got something big on his first day in office because the people have been, I mean, frankly, the American people have been asking for another uh, coronavirus stimulus bill for basically as soon as they got their checks from the first one. Um, and so I'll be, I'll be a little surprised uh, if that doesn't happen. And then I also think, frankly, we're going to see a student debt relief bill at some point. It's not going to be as massive as, as uh, what Bernie Sanders would like. Uh, as what many on the left would like. That is, it's not going to be all of it, um, but it will be a large chunk of it. And I think, uh, you know, personally, I would benefit from that. And politically, I don't want that to happen at all. Um, you know, it's something where the only condition I am okay with that happening is if these is if the federal government completely gets out of student loans and stops insuring them in a different way than they do other uh, other loans, if you will. Um, but we'll see. Uh, we'll, we'll see what happens there. I don't think we're getting, at least early on, I don't think we're getting any changes to healthcare, uh, which is fine, I guess. Um, that would be a pretty hard left position, uh, especially given that Biden was really the only Democratic candidate uh, who was, you know, who came out strongly against sort of, uh, you know, single payer, if you will. Uh, I know there were some others, but he was by far the strongest against it in the Democratic primaries. 
uh, probably because he had to defend himself the most because he was the most serious candidate throughout most of the primaries who wasn't hard left. Um, I don't think we're getting that. I don't think that we're going to, I don't think that people who, you know, aren't particularly wealthy are going to notice a significant raise in taxes, if you will. Um, I, I, I do wonder about his tax plan. Uh, I, I think, uh, I think 50 cent said it best where he said he's voting for Trump because he doesn't want to be 20 cent. Uh, that's an actual thing he said during the campaign. Oh, no, I, I know. And I remember Ch- Chelsea Handler getting the flack she deserved for after hearing that saying, I had to r- remind 50 that he was black. And I'm just going to leave it at that. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So we'll, we'll see uh, what happens. I, I anticipate there will be a stimulus bill that comes out pretty quickly. I think it will be day one. I'll be I'll be pretty surprised. Uh, if there's not, it might not be the full, Hey, we're going to spend another 2.2. Was it, was it trillion billion dollars? I think it was three trillion, trillion right? I believe three, $3 trillion. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's going to be that. Uh, but I think there will be an agreement to send cash to Americans, which, you know, um, on the one hand, I don't like the government spending money, but on the other hand, you know, getting basically what amounts to something of a refund is not the worst thing in the world either. Yeah, like no, if you're, that's how I looked at it last time of, oh, I'm getting a refund on the taxes they steal from me anyway. So. That's it. And uh, getting that two years in a row, I mean, I, I'm i not... Obviously, there are some people where that refund is paltry, and there are some people who aren't going to get that refund at all. Um, you know, But at the same time, you you if, if the government's going to spend money I'm going to have very little to quibble with about them just sending money directly to the American people, given that it's the American people who fund everything else anyway. Um, and so we'll, we'll see. Uh, this is not, this is not the worst thing in the world. If it, if, if it does happen like that, um, you know, I'll be, I'll be curious to see exactly what that bill looks like, but I'll be, I will be pretty shocked if there's not an announcement of a stimulus bill day one of a Biden presidency. Um, as far as other things are concerned, I, you know, I don't really know what's going to happen uh, as far as, you know, foreign policy. I, I'm not an expert in that in any any way, shape or form. I, uh, my knowledge there is uh, fairly mediocre compared to other areas of policy. But um, I do wonder uh, if the Biden presidency will be eager to get into conflict. That, that's sort of the sticking point for me is... Um, you know, do they view any particular conflict as a tool to sort of push through another agenda, if you will? Uh, or do they view it as, hey, things are nice right now and we don't have to run around with our hair on fire. Let's keep things the way that they are, because ultimately they're in control of that. Um, you know, if if a Biden presidency wants to engage in conflict, it will be able to figure out that way. Uh, it will be able to figure out how exactly to go about doing that. And if it doesn't want to engage in conflict, it doesn't have to change anything. And so we'll, we'll see. Uh, how about that second question? Um, what is it going to be like living as a Christian in a Biden-Harris presidency? Ultimately, any major change will be a slow but sure march in one direction or another. The main thing, and you and I may disagree on this, is going to be a gradual heating up, not necessarily of rhetoric from Biden or Harris or even out of any particular uh, 
political figure's mouth, but a gradual warming of anti-Christian rhetoric. Because in the United States particularly, Christians are not persecuted, at least not in, certainly not the same way that our brothers and sisters across the globe are outside of the West. It is less that we are persecuted, in fact, it's far less that we are persecuted, and more that we are a subject in many people's eyes of scorn and ridicule. I mean, it is no great object to posit that, I mean, for instance, like the stereotype of like Ned Flanders as this kind of goofy, well-intentioned, but naive person, and that's a fairly innocuous stereotype. But uh, I do think you're going to see more instances of the mask dropping. Uh, for instance, in some states right now, churches can't meet, but there are plenty of other places that certainly aren't necessary. I believe in California, there are some parts of California where strip clubs are open, but churches are still forbidden from gathering. And I think it says a lot about a person where houses of religious worship are viewed as less important than uh, places that explicitly exist to exploit women's bodies and men's appetites. Uh, I think you're going to see more instances of people like Diane Feinstein and her whole I can see the dogma lives loudly within you or Bernie grilling evangelicals about articles they've written about whether or not Christians and Muslims worship the same God, that sort of thing. And again, this is not me saying, oh, well, we're going to be lined up in the streets and shot. I don't think that's happening anytime soon. Thank God for that. But it is going to be this sort of, the mask is going to start dropping more and more where it is less, it is less of a big deal to display contempt towards Christians. Not in a direct, like, oh, we hate you and want you out of the way forever sort of thing. It's going to a lot of times more be like, why can't you just shut up and keep your views to yourself? And for Christians, the response is going to have to be, no, we're not shutting up and no, we're not keeping our views to ourselves. We're more than happy to come to the table and talk about these things, but we're not going to shut up and we're not going to stop having our views. These are things that we've held for 2,000 years near and dear to us. These are things that people far better than many of us died for. You're not making us give it up and you're not shaming us for having it. I I think, uh, first of all, I, I agree by and large with what you said. Um, I think Christians within that vein are going to need to be very particular um, about what issues and what events we speak out on. Um, for instance, <laughs> There are rumblings that uh, Biden will institute a, a national mask mandate on uh, upon being inaugurated, right? He might try and do that by executive order. I don't personally think he should be doing that. In fact, I think legally that that sort of executive order is dubious at best, but I think most executive orders are dubious at best. Um. I'm not sure that as a Christian, that's the issue I want to be fighting him on. Uh, I, I don't know that that does me a lot of good. If he, you know, uh, if he's talking about uh, wearing masks in into worship services, I, 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 on the one hand, do I think he should be telling me what to do at all? No, not really. Uh, 
But at the same time, that's it, it, it's something where he's telling me to do something that I I wouldn't normally have a problem with anyway. Uh, I might personally not like it, but I don't have a problem with it anyway. I I worry that there will be an overreaction from some, not from all, uh, and maybe not even from most, but from some where anything that he pushes forth is going to be met with, uh, you know, met with antagonism, uh, is going to be attacked, uh, is going to be uh, defined somehow as unchristian because he is the person who pushed it through. Um, and that that overreaction sort of lessens your influence on the issues that actually matter. Uh, and and that, that's why we have to be careful. Um, I, as far as that anti-Christian attitude, I think I'm in agreement with you where I, we believe that it's going to ramp up. I don't know that that rhetoric is going to come from Biden himself. Uh, I think it will come a lot more forcefully from uh, government in part because they have a president who won't be as active in sort of calling it out and putting it in front of our faces. Right. 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 Uh, and so I, I don't think you're going to see a lot of that rhetoric come from the president himself. Uh, and, and for that, I'm thankful. Uh, but at the same time, you know, it, I think he's going to let a lot more slide with regard to that uh, than Trump certainly has. Um, you know, it, it, it's something where I don't know that it's a fine line to walk, but it can be a difficult one to find if we sort of put our own uh, personal agendas sort of in the way here. And so it's something where Christians, I think, are going to need to be very careful about delineating between what is actually a spiritual scriptural issue and what is just an issue of preference. Um, you know, it's something where when you defy the government, if you will, and that may be a thing Christians need to do during the Biden presidency, uh, when you defy the government, you have to be very particular about how you're doing it. You need to be sure that you're doing it uh, in ways that scripture would have you to do it rather than uh, rather than whatever you simply don't like. Uh, and we don't like to hear that. <laughs> we really don't like to hear that. I brought up masks because that's been such an issue the past seven or eight months now. Uh, and it may still be an issue going into next year. Um, but that that's, you know, it's something where the government is going to do things that you don't like. Um, the government is going to do things and, and tell you to do things that you don't necessarily think you should be doing. Uh, our obligation as Christians is to still obey in as much as, you know, we, we sometimes classically say uh, in as much as it doesn't come into conflict with what the Bible says, which there's a lot of truth to that. Um, you know, we don't, if something is flagrantly sinful, flagrantly wrong, uh, we, we don't, we don't do it. It doesn't matter who's telling us to do it otherwise. And at the same time, uh, if we're undergoing persecution, uh, whatever form that might take, Abuse, I think, is is a word is a word to use here. Uh, it might be verbal or intellectual or emotional abuse, um, but if we're undergoing that, you know, we can, there's there's a line between standing up for ourselves and doing so, and outright attacking those who uh, who uh, are offering that abuse or otherwise sort of misplacing the target of uh, you know of what we're doing, where 
you know, we may see a mandate or we may see an executive order and say, see, we're being abused. When in reality, it's got nothing to do with what scripture uh, says about who we are and what we should be doing. And so it, it, it's something where uh, Christians are going to have to be very, very thoughtful about this uh, moving forward because there's going to be, and we saw it under Obama, uh, there's going to be a reaction, a gut reaction that says, we don't like this guy. This guy is for a number of issues. Typically abortion is the one that comes to the forefront. This guy is for a number of things that are unscriptural. Therefore, whatever he says is bad is sort of the, the base level that I often see and is, is largely unhelpful. It's unhelpful uh, in a societal sense. It's unhelpful as far as the health of the country. And it's also unhelpful as far as the health of the church, as far as the health of Christians, because uh, it doesn't actually do any good to just blast people because they disagree with you on something that doesn't actually matter. Did I rant enough? Oh yeah, no, you're fine. Uh, I mean, goodness, you've let me rant and rave plenty, but um, as just a small footnote though, I do think it is possible just for instance, uh, for Christians to oppose certain government and act government actions Without it being a matter of, well, we're doing this because we are Christians. Uh, just, sure, sure. Yeah. And the, um, a mask mandate would be a thing. And like we've talked about masks somewhat. I've written about it of, I wear a mask whenever a mask do. I'm required to wear a mask at work. I'm requ- I wear a mask when I go to Walmart. All of those good things. If I see a sign on the door that says, hey, you have to wear a mask. If I don't have one on my person, I go to my car and get one. That is not a big deal at all to me. I do not care to do that. Uh, but there are people who have said, "Well, if you do that, then why do you care about? Why do you care if the government tells you to do it?" Well, it's simple. If I go to Walmart and I don't wear a mask, what's going to happen to me, Chris? You're going to be escorted out of Walmart. Yeah, they're going to ask me to leave. They are not going to send a man with a gun after me. And you might say, well, that's ridiculous. Oh, no, it's not, actually. There, there have been people who have actually straight up had officers put their hands on them because they're not wearing masks. And you might say, well, they were refusing to cooperate. They were this and that. None of that changes the fact that an agent of the state was willing to initiate the use of force against that person for not wearing a mask on their face. Mm-hmm. And you can say, well, they should have followed the rules. Okay, do you believe that? Like, do you believe then? That if you're not wearing a seatbelt, that a cop should be able to run you down and like run you off the road. And you might say it's not the same thing. It's exactly the same thing because it's a hypothetical situation where you can seriously hurt someone or yourself if you don't do it. And so are they allowed to initiate force against you for that? And that, that we can argue about it on principles without it being a matter of, well, well, Jesus says I don't have to wear a mask. I I, I think what I'm getting at, and uh, you know, I, I very clearly agree with the idea that we can disagree with things without it being a spiritual basis, if you will. Sure, sure. Um, you know, there are plenty of people who hold a very different view on economics, a very different view on the role of government, uh, as far as sort of the more secular aspects of those things, uh, that are brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Right. Um, you know, there are people who believe in Keynesian economics, uh, and I don't know why, but they do, and they're still brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, but when it comes to that, uh, you know, with with the mask mandate, I, I I think there is a difference between that sort of issue 
and say, um, you know, we've talked a lot about, uh, well, I don't know that we have, but there's been a lot of discussion over the years about, um, about the government sort of monitoring what churches say specifically regarding sexual ethics um, in recent years. And there's been a few cases of that in municipal governments uh, where uh, preachers and teachers have come under fire for taking biblical stances about uh, things such as homosexuality and, tra- and transgenderism. Right. Um, there is, I think there is a substantial enough difference between those things to where I can disagree uh, with something on a secular principle uh, and still submit to it. Sure, uh, sure. Because, you know, whereas with a spiritual principle, that's a thing that I, I, I can't submit to if, if, it, if I'm being told to do something contrary. And so I agree with you 100%. Uh, I, uh, as far as the, you know, the, the use of force, again, I am not a fan of the government uh, coming out and requiring a mask mandate uh, or requiring masks. Um, I realize that numbers are out of control right now in basically every area of the country. Uh, Oklahoma, by the way, last week ran out of ICU beds. We send people to Texas now when they need ventilators. Um, you know, things are getting out of control. I understand that. I still don't want the government to require masks uh, because I don't believe that is a function of what government should be doing. Uh, but at the same time, if they require masks, I'm going to wear a mask, right? If they require me to wear a mask at service, I'm not going to like it. I'm not going to like it at all. That's pretty insidious, actually. But um, I'm still going to do it because it doesn't change my worship substantially to a point where I can't actively worship the way God would have me to. It's going to be different, to be clear. But, you know, if that's what they require, I don't there's not a spiritual principle that lets me disagree with that. And so I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to, you know civilly diso- disobey, if you will. And so I, that that's something um, I, I think when walking that line and sort of asking that question, that's the thing that's burning uh, in my mind is that, you know, Christians are going to be, are going to have to be very careful in delineating the spiritual from the secular. Uh, are, are there things that we can argue against secularly? Sure. Uh, are there things we can argue against economically, governmentally, politically, what have you? Sure. Um, but I'm only going to sort of, die on a hill, if you will, that involves a taking a spiritual stand. Um, you know, government starts cracking down on people being able to worship at all. Okay. We're going to, we're going to start disobeying the government. Then government tells me to wear a mask when I worship. That's nah, not an issue worth fighting over, at least spiritually. I'm not going to, I'm not going to disobey in that regard. Right. So. Okay. I, I am largely in agreement. It, it, it really, this is more a question. Like our divergences here, realistically, at least I think, are more matters of temperament. Uh, you have, in many respects, and this is one area in which I think you're a better man than I am. You have a much milder temperament than I do, at least in this regard. But uh, I, just as a thought experiment, um, is there? Like, let's just roll with the masks thing because that's a hot button issue right now. Is there a circumstance under which you would, recognizing it is a secular issue, that it does not ultimately affect the substance of our worship, those sorts of things? I guess, like, let's throw out this, like, crazy town hypothetical. Let's say, just for some Looney Tunes reason, it was only Christians had to wear a mask to worship. 
Like Muslims were allowed to gather freely without wearing masks. Jews were allowed to gather freely without wearing masks. Like again, recognizing that is an absurd hypothetical. It, I think most everyone, even even like hardline anti-theists, would probably raise an eyebrow at that sort of thing. But let's just say that was the kind of thing. Like, would 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 that be a thing that you would push back against and say, now hold on, there's something not right here? So I would probably push back against it, but at that point, I'm still probably going to obey the mandate because okay. uh, it's it's not the and I know you're going to progress with this to where I'm not quite sure yet. Uh, but it's something where, uh, I think at that point, the government, the government, first of all, at that point is sort of contradicting itself, right? At that point, they're infringing on, uh, freedom of, uh, speech, freedom of expression of religion, if you will. Um, and so that's, that, (laughs) excuse me, that's something that already becomes, uh, problematic. Um, but at the same time, the, the, the spiritual principle I'm basing that on is the idea that, well, the idea of worshiping together is not, uh, the, the idea of worshiping with a mask, assembling together while wearing masks, while inconvenient and while very clearly targeted, uh, is not necessarily infringing on, um, what scripture would have me do in worship. It makes it, it makes it more difficult. I'm not going to sit here and say that worshiping in a mask is easier by any stretch. Um, But at the same time, there's not a scriptural principle sort of against doing that is what I'm getting at. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And again, I didn't really have some ideal like in state to kind of push this to, to be like, well, what about this? What about this? That I, I was just kind of teasing out like, if there was a sort of breaking point, I don't truthfully feel the need to push much further only because like, that's kind of where we would diverge because at the point that selective enforcement begins is the point at which I say, I'm not doing this because again, this is, and this is not a like deep rooted principle thing where like we, we are on opposite sides of this and never the twain shall meet. For me, it is, I am not going to listen to someone who clearly does not actually believe what they're saying to me. Right. It, it's like, I'm not I, going to like, if I like, just as an, another absurd hypothetical, I'm not going to stop wearing blue because someone wearing a blue shirt is telling me that it is a mortal sin to wear blue because you sure. don't actually believe what you're saying to me at that point. Not you specifically, of course, Chris, you right. Like, one, one does not. And so Again, that is not like a hardline spiritual principle. I agree. But like for me, that would be the point at which is like, okay, you don't actually believe that the mask matters. You just want to put a burden on this particular group that other people are not expected to carry. And I would hope that if the shoe were on the other foot, if Muslims were required to wear a mask and Christians and Jews weren't, I would like to think I would I would intend to say, well, no, don't make them do that. That's not fair. If they, if we don't have to, they don't have to either. They sure. are not particularly prone to it just because they believe that Muhammad is a prophet sent from Allah. And so, again, that is not ultimately. I, I again, I strongly doubt that'll happen. Like, if that happens, there are several things that have already broken down before that. That that's more just a thought experiment for me. So for me, it, it's less about whether or not it's targeted. It's more about what principles it's infringing on. Sure. Um, sure. I, 
I we mentioned this earlier, the government is going to become more antagonistic towards Christians. And as far as uh, whether that makes me respect government more or less, I don't actually care um, because the government is, you know, we because we don't live in a theocracy um, as much as some people would like us to. Uh, and I'm not somehow passively aggressively referring to you. Uh, you very clearly know that. Um, but, you know, there are some people even in our government who would love for us to live in a theocracy. Uh, and, you know, thankfully we don't. But uh, because we don't live in a theocracy, I'm not really all that concerned on a spiritual level. And, and I mean this strictly from a spiritual perspective, whether or not the government is antagonizing, targeting Christians specifically, or whether these things that are being handed down are sort of uh, sort of incidentally uh, affecting Christians, uh, but not necessarily targeting them. Uh, I start to care when what the government uh, what the government requires infringes on what scripture has me to do. I don't care if it's targeted, um, if it's targeted or not. And so we, we had this discussion with regard to assembly a while back, and I, we may go back to having that discussion later on. Uh, what does the, you know, what are the government requirements regarding assembly? Uh, is there a way that we can safely assemble, uh, with, with one another? Is there a way that we can uh, we can do that. Well, if the government's requiring masks and requiring, uh, you know, social distancing, it may become somewhat more inconvenient to assemble. I, I'll, I'll agree with you there. Uh, and you is sort of metaphorical, not necessarily you specifically. Uh, but at the same time, that's not the same thing as barring assembly. And so what some governments have done on the West Coast where they allow strip clubs and casinos to be open while shutting down congregations shutting down churches that have the same amount of space, if not more, uh, is that that's where that line is for me. Um, you know, it, it's, it's something where you have, the government has infringed upon a spiritual right, if you will, uh, and a spiritual requirement for, uh, for people to be gathering together. That is where the issue is for me on a spiritual level. Strictly is, um, is what the government requiring going to keep me from doing something that scripture requires me to do. And so to tie it back up into the mass discussion, uh, a mask mandate doesn't make a difference at all, except maybe in the most corner of cases. Um, it doesn't make a difference at all because there's no scriptural requirement uh, to wear or not to wear masks. And there's not really a way that that would influence any other requirement regarding worship. I don't like it. I don't think the government should be doing it. Uh, and at a certain point, they would probably hear about it from me, but I'm not going to disobey over that, even if it's targeted only at Christians. Um, but if they start saying uh, you're not allowed to assemble at all on a federal level, or if they start saying um, you're not allowed to engage in worship singing at all, because you know singing starts to spread the virus, rather than you know when you're gathering together, do these things, these. Uh, these things pertaining to health, uh, when they're telling me I can't do what scripture tells me to do, I don't, I don't care if it's targeted. I don't care if it's just a, a blanket statement. Uh, now, if it's targeted, I have a legal argument to fight that, right? You know, even if it's not a spiritual issue, if it's targeted, you know, we can pursue that in court. Um, but that's also still not the same thing as saying, you know, that that violates a scriptural principle. But you know, right, if, right. if, the if the government is telling me to do something, uh, 
whether I like it or not is largely irrelevant. Whether, at least for me personally, whether it's targeted or not is largely irrelevant. Does it violate scripture? Yes or no? That's the checkbox. And that's that's not an easy thing to figure out in every case. There are some sure. things that are very clearly against what scripture would have me to do. And then there are some things that require some thought and some effort into that. Um, but I, I'm not going to refuse them based off of not liking the government or li- not even liking the government's reasoning. I'm going to refuse them based off of, is it going to cause me to violate scripture in some way? That's uh, spiritually speaking, that's the entire guiding principle for me. I, I do not care if it's targeted. Okay. So, yeah, um, I, I get where you're coming from, Ed. But, and this is, again, sincerely, it is very much, I see where you're coming from. I see the line of reasoning. I don't immediately see some grand like fallacy or flaw in the thinking. For, it is very much a a difference of temperament because it bothers me viscerally when people are inconsistent. And this is not a flaw in your end to not have that same level of visceral reaction to it. If anything, well, it is a perk of yours. Well, I'm I'm certainly bothered by it. I'm not. I don't mean to suggest that it has no effect on me. Oh no no no! Just, like, and to be clear, I'm not either. I'm just saying. It is, I mean it very seriously when I say it bothers me on a visceral level. Like, it actually angers me when people are inconsistent. And it is very much a knee jerk for me to say, You are not being consistent. You need to be consistent or you need to stop talking. So, well, is there anything else you wanted to cover today? Um, no, I think that about gets it. All right. Well, it's good to be back. I think we will try and plan on doing these weekly once again, hopefully recording on Mondays. Uh, If that's it, you've been listening to the Deep in the Tank. uh, I'm going to bungle the ending the first time back. Isn't that great? Uh, And I'm leaving it in. You've been listening to the Deep in the Tank podcast. We'll see you next time. Thank you.